You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. We're back for part two with Evelyn Reisdyke. Thank you, Evelyn, for joining us again. Oh, it's a delight. And we're going to continue in our adventure here talking about Evelyn's new book um, with Bola Batstola about um, the Nepalese shamanic path. And when we, when we last met, <laughs> we were talking about carrying a mantle of power, which we got into as we talked about these different aspects of initiation in Nepal. And I, I wanted to bring that topic up um, because I know that the, the issue of am I initiated or not, it, it, the issue of initiation itself in the West is a very fraught topic. And... Um, one of the ways someone might iron that out or begin to explore that from themselves would be to engage with um, this book, The Nepalese Shamanic Path, and engage with these initiatory helping spirits in this particular path and to see what comes in your own. So so I have a, this, this beautiful love affair with Nepalese shamanism um, and have engaged with these energies, but they're not... Um, central in my cosmology and so I just wanted to be clear with people what I what I'm inviting you to do is to buy the book and to do the practices in it do what um, this beautiful clear laying out of how you could engage in these this cosmology and these energies as Bola experienced quite spontaneously and um, in this very very traditional um, spontaneous experience of Nepalese initiation into sort of the wild shaman version of shamanism in Nepal. Um, But my point is, I'm inviting you all who are uncertain. Am I initiated? Am I not? How do I begin to engage in this work? How do I carry my mantle of power with greater conscious awareness is buy the book and do it, you know, work through these um, experiences and practices and journeys and ceremonies and rituals in this book and see how that informs your own practice. I'm not saying go play Nepalese shaman. I'm saying go use the wisdom of these people. And as, as Evelyn said in part one, this is an unbroken shamanic tradition. And so this is for those of us that come from profoundly broken not only shamanic lines, but cultures, um, reaching out to peoples who 
live these unbroken traditions, not to harvest and appropriate their work, but to engage in it and see how it informs us on our own work. And so this is my kind of where I wanted to go with that initiation conversation that was started in part one is if you're uncertain, stop stepping over that like it's a speed bump in your shamanic practice and dive in deeper. And this is one way you could do that. I don't know. Would you share anything about that, Evelyn? Well, two things. One is uh, uh, it's really important to say that we're not playing Nepalese shaman. And I'm certainly not doing that. In writing this book, it was really important for me to, again, build a bridge between Bola's culture and his 27th continuous generation's worth of shamanic experience with Westerners in a way that they could begin to get a sense of the richness of that practice and also how incredible he is as a teacher. You know, I use the gifts that I have to basically uh, uplift the gifts that he carries. Secondly, I think you're absolutely right by exploring how, uh, to a very small degree, because this is, you know, in the breadth that is possible in Nepalese shamanism, which is vast, the little slice of which that I am able to provide in a book, it will help you to begin to, in, in trying those rituals, in exploring some of the journeys that are in there, to get a sense of where you are in your relationship with the spirits. Where are you in your relationship to nature? What is the most important thing in your life? Because I think we need to um, look at that very concretely. We have to look at what is the most important thing. You know, I have this treasured time in the morning when I'm in that muzzy place of not quite awake. I'm not a leap out of bed for person. I know some of you out there are. I am not one of those. I enjoy that liminal state between sleep and being awake. And in that state, I am. I do my gratitude practice. I speak with my power animal, and also allow whatever inspiration the spirits want to share with me when I'm just conscious enough to be able to remember it. It's different from when I go intentionally on a journey, but that's one of my ways to start my day with the beings that are invisible but have a tremendous impact in my life. I do the same at the end of the day where I allow that time to, again, repeat all my gratitude for what I experienced, set the stage for the being grateful. I I always end with, and thank you for the miracles that I experienced tomorrow. I honor that in the morning. Thank you for the experiences, the the, uh, miracles I experienced today before my day begins. And I also thank for the, the experiences I had that day. And then set the stage into sleep for thank you for the miracles I will experience tomorrow. That puts me in that context of, you know, bookends of my life now in the middle of the daily stuff that has to get done has been set into this context of me communing with the spirits whom I love and I know love me. So that's my personal takeaway in some ways that and uh, having a, a whole bunch of more elaborate ways to say thank you to the spirits in the 
ceremonies that I've learned from Bola. That is a way to approach any any other culture's work, I think. It has to be that you dive into it, not to replicate it in your life, but to find how is it that that way of being, being expressed by this particular teacher or that particular teacher, this particular culture or that particular culture, can move me closer to how it would be best for me to be in the world. How is it that I can be a truly authentic human being, first of all? How can I be in right relationship with the beings around me, seen and unseen, human and non-human? How can I remember that I am tiny and yet I am part of this miraculous expanse of the cosmos, no more or less important than any other? You know, providing those kind of, you know, it's like growing up in a, I was fortunate to grow up in a family with a lot of elders. When you grow up as the only kid in a, in a context of elders, it's very different than growing up in a family with, with uh, lots of kids and, and peers. There is this, and my experience was to have this context that, was an experienced, wise context, a way to look at the world that was different than in my child's body, my child's experience. And I think it's important when we look at shamanic traditions from other places, spend time with other teachers, that we allow it to be that larger context that can inform us and and shape us, continually shape us, because I don't think we're ever cooked. You know, we think of initiation, uh, go back to the initiation idea. Initiation is this one-time event, and you survive it, and like, woohoo! I slid into home, and I'm all set. Initiation, I think of it as a, an ongoing process, because you are having to reshape your perceptions, reshape your understanding of the world and yourself continually if you are really engaged with the spirits. You are unwinding all the ordinary reality perceptions, and most of them are limitations, about who you are and the nature of the world around you. So there, there may be a, a pivotal event that sets you on the road, but the road itself is a continual initiation. It's a continual shift to perception. It's a continual path of growth where... You know, you'll hear very, very powerful shamans say they really don't know anything. All they know is how to keep their feet on the path and keep negotiating and being in relationship with that which is in front of them and around them. Well, and this you know, is really the title of your book, right? I mean, the Nepali Shamanic Path Practices for Negotiating with the Spirit World. I mean, this is... This is what you're offering to people is exactly that. You know, these are ways we can up our game here. <laughs> we can actually learn what we might need to be doing. And, and to think about everything in your life, it's like you're not ever going to be done. If you're done, you're dead. Right. <laughs> you know, the universe does not deal with stasis very well. Right. You know, you yeah. have to be in a constant place of, 
what comes next, how do I deal with it, and oftentimes the what comes next is unexpected, flies in from left field, and how we work with it is our spiritual path. That is our spiritual path, how we work with the life that we have. Reminding ourselves that it is one aspect, the, the life that we can experience with our senses is of course, where the rubber meets the road, because we're in a physical body. But it is this larger context that is around us that can support us, that can guide us, that can course correct us. And in fact, maybe throwing us that curveball from left field to reorient us. So, go ahead. Go ahead ahead and finish. No, no, go ahead. No, I can do a monologue, so jump in. Okay, so what I was going to say, as as you were saying this, I was thinking, you know, that the the person, the body, is one main tool for a shamanic practitioner. However, um, I was thinking, you know, for you as a maker of sacred tools, as someone who who creates with her hands and makes uh, objects in the world, that Nepalese shamanism must have been like a kid in a candy store <laughs> for you. <laughs> because oh, yeah, they got lots of stuff. They got oh, a lot yeah. of tools, Yeah. <laughs> And so um, I was wondering if you could just give us, give listeners just this sense, this kind of overall sense of these, of these sacred tools and ritual objects, because they're, they're this, as you were just saying, it's like these other physical manifestations through which energy is being focused or, or something, but um yeah, so just kind of a general overview. What what do you feel is really characteristic or most essential about these tools and sacred objects? Well, every shaman would have a, either a large toolkit or a small toolkit that they work with primarily. They more often than not would have a drum. Their drum is a die and grow, which is... Um, sort of shaped like a lollipop. It's a two-sided drum on a long handle, and the handle is shaped like a a perba, the uh, tri-foil knife. You know, it's a triangular-shaped blade um, knife that is used in in, uh, Nepalese and and also in Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism particularly. Um, So it would be the drum and the beater. It would be a source of light on the altar. That's really important. There's lots of parallels. And they have objects that refer to something for water, something that refers to the animals that they work with or the birds that they work with. They might have their mala, which is how they um, count their mantras. The the uh, drum is one of those things that reminds them as they are working with that drum, it has a female side and a male side. It has a handle because the perba has, uh, in its design, shows the upper world, middle world, and lower world. So it also typically has a head that shows the teacher. So you are in in your tool being constantly reminded of these energies that are helping you to do your work. There are unusual objects, like there's a shalagram, which is a um, fossil. There's a uh, a river that these tumbled stones can often be split, and they have an ammonite fossil in them, the the spiral-shaped fossil. And so that 
can remind you of several things. And in the Hindu tradition, they, depending on what that curve of the shell reveals, sometimes it's a piece of it or what have you, it reminds them of all the different deities. Each one, each particular formation reminding them of a different deity. But it also reminds you of the nature of life. Life's not a straight line. Life is this uh, constant spiral into becoming. You know, you start this little baby and it continues to evolve and change and grow. And you grow as a shamanic practitioner as well. So, and I hope nobody else can hear the beeping that's coming in through my headset. <laughs> the... Um, the other things on, on the altar remind you about uh, working in a good way with the water, working in a good way with the, the uh, air, working in a good way with the, the different spirits you work with. So you might have a representation of the Nagas, the spirits of the water, the guardians of the water, and also part of the pillar of life, that divine pillar that holds um, near the bottom anyway, of the great uh, divine pillar. You may have on there uh, an image of Garuda. Garuda is a being who is often shown with uh, the lower part of his torso ending in the the uh, shape of a purva blade. That being, who is part eagle and part human being and also shown with, oftentimes represented with a purva instead of legs, uh, the purva blade as legs, is the one that can help to keep the Nagas in balance. Because the, if there's too much action from the Nagas, or the Nagas are out of balance in one way, you might have drought, or you might have flood. Neither one of them is conducive to life. So it's important that the Nagas be kept in harmony, and Garuda is one of the ones that can do that. So you're in the altar... And the altar can be incredibly complex. And oftentimes when Bola teaches, the altar is somewhere around three feet square. All of these elements are a constant reminder of all that you need to negotiate with, all that you need to be in harmony with. So there may be crystals, there may be all these different things that represent something that is an important part of the process. So the purba, which is a uh, an incredible tool that's used very, very extensively by a Nepalese shaman. It is used for clearing. So the blade can be used for extraction. It can be used for clearing a room. It can be used to uh, clear uh, a house, you know, create a kind of sacred space with it. And it can also be used in terms of retrieving energies. It can be used for blessing. So it is, it's sort of the Swiss army knife of the Nepalese shamanic tradition <laughs> in, in that it has a, a lot of different um, possible uses. So that's a primary tool. They're, they're, they're innumerable, and they always include things from the natural world, and they always tend to include a mala. The, the shaman's garb and uh, bola's outfit is actually quite heavy because he has a, a lightweight skirts it looks like he calls them his dresses uh a top with long sleeves they're both white white cotton uh he has a, a turban which is one long strip of red cloth tied around his head and also a long strip of white cloth tied around his head on top of that is a headdress which is uh in his case it's a wide red band and 
into that are tucked peacock feathers and also uh, long por- porcupine quills. So you've got the, the birds and you've got the animals. You've got that sense of this divine light that the peacocks have. They're, they're a blessing creature in Nepalese shamanism. And on top of that, they, uh, they wear bandoliers of uh, very heavy bells as well as their malas. So crisscrossed across their chest might be um, one or two bands of bells, usually one across the shoulder and down to one side. And they, they can wear, wear, well, they could be about eh, 20, 30 pounds, depending on how heavy the, or how old the bells are. Then cross the other way, in terms of bola, he crosses heavy malas of uh, soap nut and uh, rudraska beads. Then he has his own personal mala around his neck and a uh, melong, a, um, uh, I can't remember the Nepalese word for it, it's a shaman's mirror. You can tell I'm sitting here with my eyes closed and I'm not looking at my book to help reflect away anything that's unbeneficial. And before he engages in his work, he has to put all those clothes on. He then has to empower them each time with with songs, with mantras, with dancing. And then he goes to work. So it's this whole ritual of reminding himself, even though he doesn't need reminding, but it's like reminding every cell in his body that he is going from his ordinary state to his going to business. This is his going to, going to work clothes as a shaman, going to put on his going to work clothes. He then has to do the song of awakening the costume, awakening the bells, awakening the malas, awakening all the, awakening the drum again and saying, okay, now we're ready to work. And now I, I am stepping back into relationship with these beings, honoring them because I know I can't do anything on my own unless I'm engaged in relationship with all of these spirits, nothing is possible. So even though the tools are different, and you may not have a costume, and you may not have all the bells and whistles, that idea that you need reminders, you know, there's a reason why um, Eastern Orthodox people, for, for instance, have icons. They help us to see the divine, remind us, ah, yes, I honor this spirit. I honor this saint. I honor, I honor who this is. A shaman's altar are concrete reminders that are also inspirited so they can be used as healing tools. The, the altar provides us those constant reminders of that invisible world. We need that to kind of antidote the fact that we don't see it with our ordinary senses. So, Amy, what do, you, what do you think happens to a contemporary practitioner's practice, you know, someone who's actually engaged in healing, so a shamanic healer, when they don't really have an active, awakened altar or structure that their practice is held within? Well, I would have to say that unless you have some way to engage the spirits and remind yourself that the spirits are... We have a saying in our our, uh, healing practice when people are, um, you know, all set to say how fabulous and wonderful you are, and we go, it's the spirits. The spirits make us look good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it that 
reminder that we may be the arms and legs and eyes and ears of spirit here in the human world, but we can't do our work without the spirits. In fact, we can't take in breath without the spirits. We can't eat or drink without the spirits. That larger sense of this this intangible something that makes life possible, that flows through life, and and allows for continuance that is incredibly strong and also fragile in the fact that it's so interconnected that anything that's a part of it can be imbalanced enough to throw the whole machine out of kilter. You know, when we put ourselves in that place, it's an incredibly humbling experience to recognize, yeah, I have some personal wisdom, but in the larger scope of things, you know, I don't know how to make, uh, you know, you think about it, a plant, I don't know how to take sunlight and water and turn it into sugar. I can't do that. I do not have that capacity. That's that's a hum every weed in the yard knows how to do that. But I don't. I don't have that capacity and that that place of humbleness. I don't mean like fake humbleness, but that that you're gobsmacked by how miraculous the life is that you live at, because of this intangible energy that takes innumerable forms that allows life to be. And when you're in that place, you naturally, and I mean really being in that place, not giving it lip service or just thinking about it intellectually, but letting yourself feel that to the point where you weep with the miracle of the fact that you're sitting here drawing breath, that's when you step into doing the work. Well, and I'm thinking about this relative to people who are shocked when you say to them, you know, your altar is not a place to just put pretty things. It's not a place to just put, you know, crystals you've purchased, Um, you know, beautiful items you may have purchased that other people made and maybe beautiful items you've made. But it's not a display. An altar is, um, you know, as you're talking about, if we if we've humbled ourselves to each item on the altar to understand why it's there you know why is this bowl of water there you know why is this shell there you know why are they there and what are we asking to be in relationship with and how are we asking to be in relationship with it it becomes a whole different um reason for existence it isn't there just to put pretty things um that make me hope spirit might show up (laughs) right Right. It's, in some ways, it becomes a kind of mirror to see ourselves in. Yeah. When you look at an altar that's fully in spirit and you look at the water, you, you can be grateful for the water in your body. And when you, you work with water spirits, perhaps, as a, you can be grateful for the work, water spirits you work with. When you see the stones on the altar, you think about how grateful you are for the fact that you have minerals in your body that allow you to stand. You have this framework of bones inside of your body. You have also minerals in every organ of your body. And so there's a way to see the stone on the altar as part of your physicality. It's part of your ability to be grounded on the planet and also represent a specific spirit that that might represent on the altar. The same thing with each piece. It it becomes this kind of 
mirror in the way that I think of as a reverent participatory relationship. We have to see the sacred in ourselves and in the other being. And when you're with other beings, visible or invisible, you are constantly having to reassess where you are. You know, where am I in my in my true visceral understanding of my place in the cosmos? Where am I in my sense of why I'm here? How am I doing relationship? You know, we all need to be attentive to that because there's, there's no such thing as being all done. You know, you can't get married to someone and then, okay, I'm good. I'm, I'm good that we, we're married now and I, I don't have to worry about it anymore. You know, th- that's insane. <laughs> and right. yet we would not necessarily think the same thing about working with the spirits. You don't meet one and go, okay, well, I've got this power animal now and we're cool. I'm done. No, right. and let's you go, have to be in a relationship. Yeah. And let's go back to what you said about where am I. So, so we have this relationship. I'm just kind of gesturing as this this is me in relationship with my altar and all the energies that puts me in relationship with as this kind of mirror and helps me to ask this question, where am I? And the other thing that you express beautifully in the book is that whole thing, you know, the human and the relationship with the altar and that world is held in a larger cosmology that gives it all context. And right. so, so why don't you talk a little bit about the the Nepalese co- cosmology that takes us beyond this idea that the the cosmology is simply this commonality of these three worlds, but it's a cosmology is more than that. It helps us answer the question of who am I, where am I, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going. And I would add that those are questions that need to be continually asked. Those are questions because as we evolve and change in our lives, and I think, you know, if we're really doing this right, we have to be changing all the time and evolving all the time, gaining well, new wisdom. Uh, yeah. gain, you know, Wouldn't you hope like, your answer is different now than it was when you were 20? <laughs> absolutely. You know, life is a very dynamic school, you know. Right. So it, it, the, the shaman believe that, you know, their upper part of their body is a reflection of the upper world. Their torso is a reflection of the middle world, and from the hips down is connected to the lower world. So the cosmos is not just outside, it's inside. So when you are interacting, say, with the spirits of the lower world, you maybe go visit your power animal in the lower world, that lower world is not outside of you, it's also inside of you. So and you wouldn't necessarily think of it as stratified because the spirit world really isn't stratified. We only create that stratification so we have a way to interact with it. So you're doing a piece of internal experience as well as an external experience. When you go on a journey to someplace in the middle world, you are doing that and recognizing that that's happening inside of you. So when you have that reflection, when you know that what I'm doing here in the world It's not just happening outside of me. What I'm doing in the world is happening inside of me. You know, and frankly, we give a lot more attention to what's happening to us than what's happening outside of us. And when you recognize that if you're taking actions in the world, either in a journey or in ordinary reality here in the middle world, you are taking those exact actions inside your body. 
So if you are um, being uh, inattentive to balance, I'll, I'll be kind, or uh, maybe I should just say if you're in conflict outside, you are creating also that same conflict inside your body. So not only are you disturbing the health and well-being of beings outside of you, you are disturbing the health and well-being of what is inside of you, not just in your spiritual sense, but in your physical sense. So you are constantly reminded, and, and that reminder makes it really easy to choose something that's going to be good for you. You know, <laughs> because we tend to be pretty self-centered as, a, as human beings go. You know, we kind of learn that when we're little kids. And is there... You start, is there anything in the sh- in the in this Nepalese cosmology itself that really helps you to crystallize that that everyday task of balance and how how do I maintain that balance? Is there anything in the Nepalese cosmology that just helps you with that way of being that growing out of that kind of self-centeredness of the child into that this sense of how do I carry this responsibility? I think I, I, uh, to go with the, where I was going, when you recognize that it is extremely personal, extremely personal, it involves your own health and well-being. You know that 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 can shake you like nothing else. When you recognize that how you are in the world changes your own health and well-being, how you are in the world affects not just your own health and well-being, but the people that you could love the beings, you know, your pets, whatever it might be, the beings that you really care about. When you have that visceral understanding based on that, that cosmology, based on the reflection that you see in the purba, based on the reflection that you see on your altar, based on the experience that you have when you're in ceremony where you're feeding all these beings, you recognize that there is no separation. Because remember, in the Eastern tradition, the divine is a what-so. You are part of it. So how you behave, how you behave has ripples that go inside as well as outside. So in action, if I have my hands out in front of me, this is radio, so I'll just describe it. So something I'm doing out here in front of me with my hands is I clap them together audibly for the audience. That creates sound waves that go into me and go out over all around me. The same is true of anything that we think or feel or take action with in the world. So there is this, when you have your focus on the fact that this entire cosmos, this unity, this divine unity is unshakably connected and, and, that everything that you think and feel and do moves all the pieces around. It causes you to, and particularly when you recognize that it impacts your own health and well-being, because, you know, as Westerners, that's that's the most important thing, isn't it? Uh, You automatically proceed in a different way. And you don't proceed, you don't proceed in a, in a fearful way, I don't mean to say that, you proceed in a much more intentional, compassionate, clear communication. Oh gosh, clear communication is a big one. And in an honoring way, in a respectful way, 
because you want to feel that harmony in your own body. You want to feel that you are not impacting your loved ones negatively. You want the everything that you care about to be nurtured by your presence. Nurtured by your presence, not wounded by your presence. And if it is inadvertently wounded by your presence, that you do repair so that you re-establish harmony. So in essence, you are doing then the role of the shaman within your life in ordinary reality. So am I moving through as a force of harmony and healing? Or am I causing disruption? And if I do cause disruption, because everybody gets pissed off once in a while, then my responsibility is to do repair, to bring back that harmony, because I don't want to hurt myself or anyone else around me. And everything about the practice in Nepalese shamanism continually reflects that back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In your own practice, do you practice inside um, a Nepalese cosmology or do you practice inside your Norse cosmology, which is the cosmology of your ancestors, for those of you that Mm -hmm. missed that show? (laughs) (laughs) I tend to practice in in relationship with primarily two beings, my great-great-grandmother and my power animal. And when I need... Uh, I need to reach a different understanding, I call on all the possible spirits that I can to help me course-correct. Because the spirits, particularly the ones in these... these um, complex traditions and Norse has tradition is certainly complex in its own way. Nepalese is very complex because it is also um, more foreign, at least to me initially. It provides me another perspective. I am somebody that likes to have another perspective. When I'm up against the wall, I can receive compassion and teaching from the spirits who I know best and they speak to my heart and they help me to get in a place where then I can receive more insight. And so it's somewhat like my creative process in a way. You know, it's not the product, it's the process that is what's important in creativity. So for me, it's always a process. I engage with the spirits that I am closest to first, and then I spiral out as needed to the others that I've been fortunate enough to interact with. And that when I honor all the spirits that are that have been teachers for me, living or or invisible ones, they are there to engage with. They may be there to, you know, when I'm doing an offering to the river, I might say it. And I also honor the Nagas who provide their energy to the waterways all around the world. I include them because I have been exposed to them. And it's another way, it's a sort of way to honor the river that has a face. You know, there's something useful from the Nepalese tradition and also from the North that you are interacting with things that are intangible like weather phenomenon or the spirit of water or the spirit of the earth in a way that is more um, like interacting with a being that's recognizable. So it provides another kind of context for the way we are wired as human beings, as upright primates who are primarily visual and are designed to interact 
in relationship, it's easier to be in relationship with a being who has a face. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and to have both, so I can go down to the river, which is this wonderful sound in the spring. It's fresh water. It's full of fish. It's a little tiny river, but it's really a blessing here in the neighborhood. You can feel that as a, a strong local spirit. I can interact it with all the ways that I love that river. And then I can also think about the Nagas who have a face, and I can honor them and through them connect myself to the waters all around the world. And that's an example. But that that provides another layer, not of complexity, but of richness. So, and that level of richness is really, for me, um, it allows my my gratitude to become these marvelous uh, concentric circles, you know, they go out and out and out and out into yeah. the larger space. Yeah. So as you watch people in class with Bola um, experiencing these teachings or on retreat with Bola, and, and once they get past the kind of cognitive dissonance you were talking about in part one of the show, um, what do you see uh, engaging in, in this cosmology brings to people that they didn't have before? I think the, the blessed celebratory nature of it, that life really is a kind of blessed celebration. It's this extraordinary journey that we get to be on in a physical body that goes as long as, um, as it can. And, you know, we all have an expiration date. We just can't read it. So however long that journey is, it can be this remarkable, you know, celebration. Celebrating all of it, even the things that are feel tragic to us, are part of the richness of who we are. My, mm-hmm. my, my great-great-grandmother, who is my, my primary teacher, she reminds us that think about life as this marvelous gathering basket. And don't sort the experiences that you've had. Put them all in the basket. They're all part of the richness of who you are, the good, the bad, the times you succeeded, the times you fell flat on your face, the times that you fell in love, the times your heart were broken. All of those are part of this richness that you put in the basket while you're alive. And she says, that's what you savor when you no longer have a body. So to think about that fact that we have this capacity to take all of that richness in and interact with it and celebrate our life, celebrate the fact that we have life. And in that celebration, be grateful for it and grateful for all the beings that participated in the fact that we do have life because we can't do that in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. We, we are dependent upon all those other beings. Yeah. And to have the, this wonderful, rich gathering basket of experience and not think of one of them being more important than the other. Because it's only when you cross to the other side that you'll look at it and go, you know, that piece over there that I didn't think was very important really was pivotal. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. even as we look back on our life, we, we see the experiences that we have and thought, oh, that was more important than I thought there, that left turn I made. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so Evelyn, let's dive back into the book here. There's a, um, a beautiful description um, and uh, explanation about the reason for the dedication ceremony and then what that looks, what Bola's dedication ceremony looks like and lays that out. And then, and then there's this paragraph I pondered for a while where, where you talk about, in essence, simplifying that ritual and how a person could begin to engage with that. Now, my, my sense of that is it's a beautiful example of what you're talking about, about writing the book in a way that it builds a bridge because it does break down this really lush and rich dedication ceremony that is Bola's practice at this time into doable steps a person could take because there is this tendency for uh, Western practitioners to be awed by the exotic, rich nature of shamanism that's held in these traditions, but then just not know what to do about it, right? And so you create this bridge. And I pondered that, though, and I wondered, you know, what does it say about us as contemporary Western practitioners that we need that, you know, that we, what does it mean if, you know, because the dedication ceremony is the beginning of actually doing the work (laughs) in a sense, right? So what does it mean if we need the beginning, the actual getting started to do the work broken down for us? What is, what is that talking, saying to us, about what we should be shooting for, <laughs> what we're what we're looking at, or how we could be inspired by this work. Well, I'll, I'll say it in this way: Western practitioners learn techniques first, and then develop relationship with the spirits. That's how we're taught. We learn a, a technique for journeying. We learn uh, if we go and learn healing practices, we learn how to do extractions and depositions and soul retrievals and what have you. And then we have to deepen relationship with spirits and learn about taking care of the spirits that are around our home and in our home. And, you know, it's a secondary thing where if we were raised in an indigenous culture that practiced shamanism, that context would come first. The learning how to be in relationship with nature, being able to feed the spirits understanding the the idea of contributing toward continuance, being in harmony with the beings around you, that would come first. And then you'd learn techniques. So we're we're having to turn ourselves inside out to to fill in the gaps that we did not learn. We didn't learn shamanism in that context. We we have to relearn the context, not the techniques. The techniques are, are things that flow from the context. And if you don't have the context in place, then the techniques are really not as effective. Yes, they will have some effect, certainly. But without the context, they're, they're, they're standing on very rickety legs. Let's put it that way. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the context, which is our relationship with the invisible world, that context is where the tools come from. In interacting with the spirits, you see how vital harmony is. So, of course, when you then learn the tools about helping an individual have harmony inside their body, it makes sense. It's flowing from that larger context that you already understand. 
You understand it not intellectually, but viscerally. You have made offerings your entire life. You understand how important it is to, to pay attention to the rhythms of nature. You may live close to nature that it is required that you understand when animals migrate, when plants are ripe. You, you need that knowledge in order to survive. That context is what's missing for Westerners. But I believe it can be put in place. And the faster we do it, frankly, the faster we attend to that context, the better it's going to be for our planet. Because our planet is experiencing our lack of connectedness with it. You know, we've operated from this place of being autonomous, which is insane. Yes, and I, I, I was thinking about the um, the act of making puja, you know, mm-hmm. and I was wondering, could you share with listeners um, an act of making offerings that would be something they could truly like get up off their beautiful butts after listening to this podcast and go do it towards that that bigger idea of engaging uh with our life in a way that's more balanced let's just say with the earth itself is there some sort of simple act of puja they could make it can start with a uh, with some water or i love to do an offering with bird seed it's the simplest thing and man the critters especially in winter love to see more bird seed on the ground to go out with an offering, and it, in Nepalese tradition, it would have to be something really beautiful. So you might do flower petals, you might have incense, you know, it might be as elaborate as you want, but that it be heartfelt. You're bringing food to the spirits. And you bring food to the spirits to not say thank you for just what's gone before, but you are thankful for the next breath that you take. You are thankful for the next beat of your heart. You are thankful for the air that you breathe. You are thankful for the water that rushes not only through your body, but falls to the sky as rain and nourishes all the plants. And you allow yourself to go as deeply into that gratitude as possible, including those beings that you are closest to. Perhaps first, giving thanks to the parents who brought you into the world, even if you don't like them. They still served a remarkable purpose, bringing you into the physical world and all the people behind them that are your ancestors. The trees, the plants, continue to fill up with your gratitude for life until you are so full, you're just bursting. And then leave your humble offering on the ground with this idea that you are feeding your beloveds. When you put that offering on the ground, you are feeding your beloveds who love you, who make sure that you are alive, that have passed to you your body, when I'm thinking about the ancestors, who have given the elements for your body, which is nature, which provides the flow of all the elemental forces that allow you to remain living. So you're feeding your beloveds. And to do that, it's so simple. Go for a walk. If you have great long hair that I do, I leave some hair. When I have nothing else in my pockets to leave, I pull out a few hairs and leave hairs. Because we've 
trees um, falling down and branches breaking in different winters, I have found bird's nests with, uh, it was then blonde hair, blonde hair wound all the way around the bird's nests. I found them in mouse nests too. You leave just that gift. I'm giving some of my carbon back to the earth with with my heartfelt gratitude for the the beauty that is life with its hardship, with its confusion, with its turmoil, and yet it is this extraordinarily beautiful gift that I have been given mm-hmm. and that I have a responsibility to give back as often as is possible for the privilege of being alive and thank reminding you. myself yeah. of that yeah. responsibility. Yeah, thank you. So, so in these last few minutes, what would you share with us what you think could be sort of the wildest vision of possibility that you and Bola share about having worked together to create this really beautiful book? Um, of authenticity and inspiration, you know, by spirit to have your capacity to make things so clear. And uh, Bola's, you know, how, what do you say, 27 generations? I mean, good Lord. 27 anyway, continuous. Continuous generations, right. So what, what was your big vision, like your wildest dreams um, about what you could create by bringing this into the world? Uh, really to help human beings be better human beings to recognize that they are they are no more or less important than any other part of creation they have tremendous power but they have to stop wielding it as though they were toddlers you know toddlers have a lot of power too but they send a lot of stuff crashing to the ground and mm-hmm. that's kind of the way we've been operating mm-hmm. so to recognize that we're beings of power that have to learn how to do that use that power in a good way and that we are part of the divine and we have to learn how to use our divinity in a good way. And it's and relearning that context that is so present for Bola and his world that we in Western world have the capacity to put that context back in place for ourselves. And it requires us being intentional about it, humble about it, that we don't know we focus on all the things we know and we brandish that about like a sword, you know. But the truth of the matter is what we don't know is far more important that we need to bring our focus on attending to what we don't know. And to remember that we're all... <laughs> Bola has this wonderful phrase he uses when he teaches. I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what a wonderful mantra yeah. for us to have. Yeah. I'm still learning. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of learning, um, would you like to take a couple minutes here and talk about your apprenticeship program? I'd love to. This is this is going to be our 13th. We um, do them as residentials. The information is on our um, communal website here, spiritpassages.com, under initiatory training programs. And we we try to instill this same kind of understanding, as well as teaching all the usual um, traditional techniques that a shaman would use in the world, we really focus on the relationship people have with the spirits, with nature, and with themselves, and helping people to really integrate, because that's something that was missing, and certainly in my initial training, how to integrate all of this into life. Because when we fully integrate it and are living it, then we really reap the blessings from it. 
It's not just something that we've learned that we put on the shelf. We're living in this atmosphere of the blessings. And then in living in that in that uh, atmosphere of being blessed, we are much more likely to extend that to others. And so that's really the focus in our work, teaching all the different methods around healing, but also giving people initiatory experiences, allowing them time to spend time in nature, uh, enjoying it's a retreat on a lake, so they have the, the water spirits and they have the forest, and the animals that come through, and weaving all of that together and then supporting people to be able... We, we teach small groups intentionally so that people have... Um, an opportunity to really be coached along on how to integrate these things into their life. Because that's where the rubber meets the road, when it's not just an idea, but it's a lifestyle. Beautiful. And that's really our focus. Yeah. Thank you, Evelyn. Um, Everybody, I want to remind you that Evelyn's book, this new book that we're talking about, is called The Nepalese Shamanic Path, Practices for Negotiating the Spirit World. Um, and thank you for this this next beautiful um, piece in your ever-growing um, list of um, tools, beautiful tools uh, or um, maybe even thresholds of openings that allow us to engage more deeply in our practice. So thank you, Evelyn. Well, thank you for having me on the show again. Yeah, thanks for coming back and giving us this um, time. Um, I did also want to say, just back to the learning uh, topic that we're on here, is Massive Illusion and the Authentic Self is happening the first week of June in 2019, and we are currently taking registrations. You can go to lastmaskcenter.org, and all the information you need there is on the homepage. Um, And so back to Evelyn, uh, spiritpassages.com to find the information about the classes and this apprenticeship that she's talking about. And then also evelynreisdyke.com for um, direct access to the books. And again, that's E-V-E-L-Y-N-R-Y-S-D-Y-K, evelynreisdyke.com. All right, Evie, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, as always. So we give gratitude to the ancestors that gathered around, those human and non-human, and those that reach out to us from many different cultures to help this human family figure out uh, what the hell it's supposed to be doing right now and to do it better. (laughs) (laughs) I give gratitude to the earth below and the sky above and those human hearts that unite us all. So thank you everyone for listening and I invite you all to take um, a trip either electronically or on your little two feet to your favorite bookstore and go buy yourself a new book.